And so now is the time that we enter into uh, our sermon this morning, our message for this morning. And uh, we're actually going to be picking up in the book of Matthew. I'm pretty excited about this because uh, prior to the holiday season, I was actually preaching out of Matthew in my previous edition. And uh, so being an expository preacher, I just like to roll right through with it. But before jumping into where we left off uh, at my previous spot, I would like to get you up to speed, really, uh, with where we are. And uh, so we're going to be in Matthew, but before that, I'm just going to kind of preface as to why we're going to be doing the study that we're doing this morning, because this was a little bit different uh, from what I normally do. I, I guess I can't say that too much because I have done ones like this before, because uh, I'm actually going to be jumping back into the beginning of the book of Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to be reading through verses 1 through 23. Not the entirety of it, but a good chunk of it right there. And you might uh, realize from the get-go that Matthew 1, 1 through 23, includes a good chunk of genealogy. I am well aware of that. And uh, that's something we are actually going to be touching on today as well. And you might be wondering, why on earth, especially for this first day, would he want to talk about genealogy? I mean, it kind of just leaves like just a, just a sort of one of those morning tastes inside your mouth. You know, when you wake up in the morning, at least one of those sorts of tastes in your mouth that think we're going to be talking about genealogy. But let me fill you in a little bit because um, I was talking to a friend a number of months ago. And we were having a conversation. My friend's a Christian. And uh, as we were talking, he asked me, we had just met each other, and he wanted to know, uh, being a minister, what my favorite book of the Bible was. And I said, well, the Gospel of John. I know, pretty basic answer. It sounds kind of lame. Not, not that the Gospel of John is lame, but it just sounds like a very basic answer. Why not like Ecclesiastes or something with a big name like that? But no, John is my favorite book in the Bible, so I turned the question back on him. Well, what's your favorite book of the Bible? And he said, the book of Isaiah. And the funny thing is, like, I had uh, read some portions in Isaiah that, uh, that, I, that I really liked a lot, so I mentioned those to him. They're kind of harder portions of Isaiah. And then after he had, we had talked about that a little bit, I then decided to ask him a, a, I guess, kind of a forbidding question. In fact, I kind of prefaced it that way. I was like, uh, so as a minister, I don't know if it's appropriate for me to ask you this question, but what is your um, least favorite book in the Bible? Now, I know that that doesn't even seem like an appropriate question at all. This is all God's word, right? But would you agree with me that sometimes there are portions inside the Bible that are difficult to read? He didn't want to answer that question. I don't blame him. That's a lot of pressure to put on somebody. But I went ahead and I told him my least favorite book in the Bible. First Chronicles. Now, why on earth First Chronicles? Does anybody want to guess why I said First Chronicles? I know a few of you know. I had said First Chronicles because the first ten chapters or so are genealogy straight genealogy and so it's kind of a rough read from the get-go once you get past the genealogies you see there's some pretty incredible stuff in there but those first 10 or so chapters are really really difficult but then god did something really incredible with me and this is what i was actually sharing with him was that even though first chronicles was my least favorite book that i finished before then i finished reading whatever book of the Bible I was reading for my devotional time, and I was in prayer to God, just trying to figure out what book should I go to next. And I just really strongly started to feel like, you know, I really don't want to do this, but I've acknowledged recently that First Chronicles is my least favorite book, so I'm going to read First Chronicles. 
And I tell you what, God totally transformed the way I looked at the first 10 chapters of First Chronicles. He changed my heart toward genealogies. And now I, I get pretty excited about genealogies and tell the truth. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to give you like, you know, every single name of the genealogy you're reading this morning, because I'm just kind of wetting your palate with this. I want you to get a taste. In fact, biblical preaching's goal is to give you a higher view of Scripture. So that's what I'm trying to do right now. So that way, when you see genealogies, like at the beginning of Matthew, you're not just skipping over them saying, ah, this is boring. I think you're going to find out there's actually some very interesting things inside of there that we do need to be aware of. Uh, in fact, what I like about the genealogies is it calls us to remember everything that God has done in the past for his people. And it gives us those names of the people so that you see that name and you say to yourself, ah, yes, Moses, or oh, yes, Abraham. And you recall all the things that they struggle with throughout their lives. Also, the genealogies remind us of the repentance that they had to go through because there's a lot of imperfect people Inside genealogies, in fact, I've only found one person in Matthew's gospel that is that is perfect. So a lot of imperfect people inside the genealogies. And as we see how they needed to repent, so should we remember that we need to repent as well. So those are our calls right there. So our calls are to remember God and his work, and we also need to remember the need for us to repent of our sins because our lives are not pure and clean as Jesus was. So genealogy, we're gonna get to our text here in a second. Genealogy, like I said, this sounds like a bad word to us right now. And even though I kind of prefaced and you know, gave you a little taste of my journey with all that, you're probably still thinking, I'm not too excited about getting into this genealogy right here. In fact, uh, having a pastor preach on genealogy reminds me of a story that I heard a while back about two men that went to heaven. Yes, I know, it's, it's fictional. It's not true, a true story. I don't know these men. Uh, one day at the pearly gates, uh, a pastor appeared. Peter was at the gate, so the pastor inquired as to whether he could enter God's kingdom. So Peter got out his book and started flipping through the pages. He found the pastor's name and started reviewing his deeds. After a minute or two, Peter told him, well, the good news is you made it. You're in. So he proceeded to give the pastor a golden crown and a plain white robe, you know, one of those dazzling white robes we know we're going to get in heaven. And the gates opened and the pastor started walking through. But before the pastor could make it very far, another man arrived at the gates. The pastor heard Peter say, I see here that you were a taxi driver. Curiously, the pastor paused and turned around to see what would happen right now. Peter went through the book and found the taxi driver's name and looked at his deeds. And Peter's eyes got big with amazement, and he said, this is incredible. So Peter proceeded by giving this man not just a dazzling white robe, but one with gold trim. And then he didn't just put one crown on his head, but three crowns that were decorated with precious stones. Well, the pastor, he became indignant. He's thinking to himself, wait a second here. And he said to Peter, wait a minute, I'm a pastor. Do you have any idea of how many people I've told about the Lord? Peter looked back at the pastor and said, Sir, Sunday after Sunday, you preach sermons that put everybody to sleep. But when this man drove his taxi, his passengers all learned how to pray. <laughs> so I don't wish to bore you with genealogy this morning. 
I want you to turn, I want to turn you toward God's word, including the genealogy, so that you might look at them and remember what God has done for his people, but also to be thinking about what God has done for you. Also, I want you to note that all the people, again, the righteous and the wicked, were all imperfect, and thus they need to repent of their former ways of life. So Matthew chapter 1. We're going to start off reading 1 through 6, and then I want you to bookmark it right there because we're going to pick it back up later and start in verse 18 and go till the end. So Matthew chapter 1, starting off verses 1 through 6. 1, 1 through 6. <clears throat> the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Now already we're seeing that there's familiar names right here, right? And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Amminadab. And Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. And Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. So we're going to pause right there. We're going to put it down. Uh, that's not the end of the scripture reading for today. But right now, like I said, I'm kind of taking it easy on you a little bit with the genealogy here. So we're going to put down the genealogy for right now. But what on earth would compel me to share this with you this morning? And once again, I'm going to reaffirm this. It's my conviction that everything in God's word is indeed divinely inspired and serves a purpose. Now, it's easier to see the purpose of the genealogies when we dig into them, and don't worry, we're not doing a deep dive into them. I just want to share some highlights. And uh, if you were to pay close attention, you would note that the genealogy is not just one person after another person. There are notes throughout the genealogy. In some instances, it makes notes of important events. For instance, you'll see that there is a note about, if you keep on reading, you would see that there is a note about before the deportation to Babylon, and after the deportation of Babylon. That's a very fascinating little division right there. You'll see titles. For instance, we see when we keep on reading that the title of king is denoted to some, while Christ, of course, is attributed to our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Throughout Matthew's genealogy, you'll notice that a number of women are also mentioned. And only does this in a few instances, so why did he feel like certain women were noteworthy enough to include inside this genealogy. I think that all we got to do is find one and talk about her a little bit, and we'll find out. Now, we're actually going to go over three of them, because I want you to see a common theme amongst all three of these women. Uh, the first one that we come across is Tamar. Tamar. She's the first woman, woman mentioned in this genealogy. It says that Judah... The father of Perez and Zerah, well, that's interesting. We're going through a genealogy. It mentions two of the people right there because it's tracing the descent of Jesus, but it mentions two names right there by Tamar. Okay, Tamar. Who cares about Tamar, right? Well, this is actually a very important note because when we go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 38, we learn about Tamar. In fact, we learn about Judah, too, through Tamar because Tamar was not Judah's wife. Tamar was not Judah's wife. She was his daughter-in-law. And that story, that's pretty intense as well. And Judah accidentally conceived through Tamar. Turns out that she was pregnant with twins. Thus, that's where we get those two names inside the genealogy, Perez and Zerah. 
And through Tamar, the genealogy provides a dose of reality about the person of Judah and the tribe of Judah. Because left to our own devices, we think to ourselves, okay, so if you're familiar with the Bible, you understand that Jesus descended from the line of Judah. In fact, he's oftentimes called the Lion of Judah. And so we think to ourselves, Judah, okay, so Judah must have been the good one. He must have been the upstanding one. He must have been the pure one. He must have been the holy one. After all, he's the patriarch of the Jewish people. He, he, was the, he had to have been the obedient one. He had to have been the spotless one. Why would Messiah choose to descend from him? Otherwise, not the case at all with Judah. Judah was a man of great faults. But we see something incredible in the life of Judah. If you were to read his whole story and read the story of Joseph, for that matter, you'll see that Judah was also a man of repentance. Very important thing to remember. If we skim through just a little further, you find another woman. But first, you see the name of a man by the name of Salmon. The name of his wife was Rahab. So Rahab, you probably recognize. Salmon, you're probably like, Salmon? I don't remember any Salmon. Well, you'll see him in other genealogies, which is why you don't recognize his name. But you do recognize the name of Rahab. Rahab, you'll recall, was a prostitute, possibly even a temple prostitute. She lived in a pagan nation where the enemies of God lived. She was from Jericho. You remember that Joshua and his army destroyed Jericho. But we also know that the reputation of the Lord was carried to Jericho. And that the Lord ended up sparing Rahab because she feared the God of Israel. Because of the Lord's reputation, she helped the Hebrew spies to escape from Jericho and be able to report back to Israel. And in return, the spies agreed to spare her family when Israel's army attacked. Through the genealogy, we learned that she married a man from Judah named Salmon. What changed in her life to lead her to marry a man of Israel? She ended up repenting from her old way of life in light of the greater promises brought to her by this foreign God that she had not previously known, this great God that transforms lives, that can tear down walls like those of Jericho by himself. Next up, this will be the last one of the people in the genealogy we're going over, Boaz. Most of us probably recognize the name of Boaz. He was a very important man in the Old Testament. He was the great-grandfather of King David. Boaz was married to a woman named Ruth. But what is significant about Ruth? Well, she wasn't an Israelite. She was actually a Moabite. But she married an Israelite, and that Israelite man ended up dying. So she decided that she was going to take care of her mother-in-law, Naomi. And so uh, so Ruth had to work in the fields to provide for Naomi. And then one day, the owner of the field came along. His name, of course, we know, was Boaz. And Boaz liked Ruth. Uh, Boaz liked Ruth. And Boaz married Ruth. But once again, wasn't Ruth a Moabite? Something you need to know about the Moabites. The Moabites were the enemy of Israel. 
Why would this man marry this woman who was of the people who were God's enemies? What happened? Well, God blessed Ruth because she decided to stay with her mother-in-law, but even more importantly, Ruth committed herself to the Israelites and to the God of Israel. She told Naomi, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. In essence, she repented from her pagan ancestry and turned to the God of Israel. So what we've just discussed are just a few of the people in Matthew's genealogy. Just from their brief stories, we are directed to Matthew's main point, that being the fulfillment of prophecy through the birth of Jesus Christ. I want to pick back up in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, in verse 18 is where we're picking up at. So Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18 now. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. Let's pause right there for a second. Joseph who? Joseph, son of David. He was a descendant of King David. The genealogy tells us that. In fact, we learned that Solomon, his son, was born not of what it would call David's wife, but rather of Uriah's wife. Uh-oh, something bad happened there. Wasn't David chosen as an ancestor to the Messiah as well? How could Messiah be the descendant of an illegitimate child? Well, it's because David was a man after God's own heart. And what that should mean to us is not that he was perfect, but he's a man who was willing to repent of his wrongdoings and to follow after God. Something important to realize about the book of Matthew and all the letters and gospels inside of our New Testament is that when they were written, not every single church, not every single gathering had immediate access to these documents. So the fact that we have access, we're able to look through this genealogy and see all these incredible details, we kind of take it for granted a little bit. But back then when they did have a copy, they were able to confirm with their own eyes that this Jesus is the promised king of the Jews through Abraham, through Jacob, through David, and through Mary. Let's continue reading. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So we're going to stop here again. What sins are we talking about? What sins was Jesus rescuing his people from? Once again, we see them in the genealogy, and as we talk about these stories, they become all the more evident. Adultery, idolatry, murder, unfaithfulness. Jesus descended from bad people. They were chosen people. But they are also a bad people. Sometimes I think that's a lot like us. We're chosen by God, but sometimes we don't act like we're the chosen people of God. And that's something that we need to do. That's something we need to have on our hearts. We need to be repentant. We need to be focused on God and following after his ways. 
But Jesus descended from a bad people, although they indeed were a chosen people. And these people that are of note are people that were also repentant. God wants us to remember him. He wants us to remember his works, and he wants us to remember his mercy. All these strange people that Jesus descended from carry a message. Many of them repented of their wickedness and participated in the Lord's blessings following. Others remained in their sinful ways uh, <clears throat> and perished. Jesus fulfilled all the expectations and requirements so that both the wicked and the righteous would have a chance to go to heaven. Verse 22 and 23 now, if you'll pick up right there along with me. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Right here we see that the angel had debunked the rumor that Mary had been unfaithful. The baby inside of her was the Son of God, conceived through the Holy Spirit. In fact, the angel directed Joseph back to his wife. And we look back at the genealogy and see some of the mothers. We realize that the pregnancies and births that they gave were also very unusual. I mean, I'm not going to go back and detail all of them, but we saw some very unusual relationships and some very unusual births. And right here, we're seeing yet another unusual birth, but instead of being scandalous or criminal, that this birth would be holy. The angel told Joseph not to be afraid. Her pregnancy was unusual, but it was of God. And that Joseph was becoming a participant in this grand story that God had set in motion because his wife was carrying a child like none other. And they were to name him Jesus. And he would be called Emmanuel, and he would save his people from their sins. Amongst us, even the most person, even the most righteous person alive in this room, even the most pers righteous person alive in the world, when they are faced with the goodness of God, they are put to shame. And that's not because God is cruel or scary per se, but because God's goodness and his holiness shames our wickedness, even in our most righteous state. And when we recognize the sins of our past, we are faced with a decision. Do we wallow in our shame or do we actually take part in God's plan of redemption? Do we repent of our sins and join the family line of Jesus? You and I are participants with Jesus in this grand story when we accept him as Lord and Savior of our lives. Yes, Jesus' ancestors made mistakes. And yes, we have made mistakes. We're all faced with that same decision. Choose repentance. God's goodness draws us to repentance, but will only be drawn to repentance if we remember the mercy and the love of our God and Father. 